Good morning. Lovely to have all the smiling faces out there and be able to share the Word of God with you. Book of Ecclesiastes. You might like to turn there with me to chapter 4. Once again, I want to remind you of the premise of the book. The premise of, of the book is Solomon, the, uh, the man who God laid upon him the wisdom from, from above, the wisest man of all. His premise is that he decided that he would see what life was like under the sun. I want you to remember that phrase if you haven't heard one of these times in Ecclesiastes before them, that is the, the main phrase. 29 times in this book Solomon refers to under the sun. And we've looked at it many different ways. Simply put, it is a life led without God. No God in the picture. A life just purely lived on this earth without any reference to God in particular. Last time we looked at the book of uh, Solomon... Solomon had decided that there was so much trouble in the world under the sun and the fact that life just did not seem to be fair. That he came to the idea that it would have been better not to have been born at all. So if you're without God on this earth, verse 3 of chapter 4, this is what he wrote, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So without God, it is better in Solomon's conclusion to that chapter, without God, it is better not to have been born at all. And we dealt with that last time we were together. And I'm sure if you haven't heard it, Pete will be able to bring it out of the ether. I don't know where it is in the cloud or wherever it is. I'm sure he'd be able to find it for you. The conclusion last time was even though life is not fair and without God we, it isn't fair, but God is fair and that's what the conclusion we came to. And so as Solomon moves through this book, he's looking at different things and aspects of life around him. And so moving on from that, Solomon now makes another observation. It was an observation based on what he was seeing around him, again, under the sun. And he comes up with practical wisdom for daily living. And that practical wisdom, I'll give away right at the beginning, that practical wisdom is by the grace of God, it is better for us to live with contentment than to live with riches and envy of things that are around us. And that's the conclusion that he'll come up with in, uh, in verse 6. But we'll get there. Let's just pray together as we come into this book. Father, we do thank you that we have a record of a journal put together by a man who had the ability and the wherewithal to look at life through eyes that did not involve you. Lord, help us to understand that we don't have to live this way, that we don't have to live under the sun, that we don't have to live without your presence, because, Father, that you are there. And all you do is ask us to call upon you. But, Father, in the midst of this life, in the midst of this earth, sometimes we take our eyes off you. 
And we try and live our lives as if you weren't there. So Father, as we go through this book, I pray that you would show us these errors that we're making and help us to always trust in you and not to live on this earth as if you weren't here. So we thank you, Lord, and look forward to what you're going to share with us this morning. Amen. Have you ever heard with keeping up with the Joneses? Is that something that you understand? Who doesn't understand it? Oh, good. So you know what keeping up with the Joneses is. A wife said to her husband, it sure is hard keeping up with the Joneses. They always seem to buy things that we can't afford. And that's what life can be like. I wonder if you've ever played that game, that game of always competing with other people, always wanting something that they have because you've seen it. Maybe you want a better car because your next door neighbour just bought a new one and you think, I deserve that. Maybe you want to beat one of your co-workers to a promotion or perhaps you want nicer furniture than, than your siblings. You've got your siblings coming over and they're always sitting on this on these lounges that to them are, are, are out of date. Say, I just need these net lounges that my siblings have. Maybe you just want to wear the same designer shoes. I don't have a problem with shoes, but I know a lot of ladies would love to have the newest designer shoes and they see a pair of shoes. That's what I find interesting. Ladies look at shoes first before they look anywhere else. But you see, the sh- I need to have those shoes. I wonder if you, you've ever tried to keep up with the Joneses. You know, it's all a part of what we sometimes call the rat race of this life, trying to stay ahead of or trying to catch up with others around you. Well, Solomon was one of the great rat rat races of his time. He had the wherewithal, he had his wealth, he had wisdom, he had a palace. Uh, He was the envy of the world. Yet, none of that brought him happiness. And as he looked around in this particular, these particular verses, he realised that no one was finding happiness under the sun in this rat race. So let's take a look at Solomon's observation of life lived without God, lived under the sun in this particular area. Verse 4 of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. He says, I have seen that every labour and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbour. This too is vanity and striving after wind. You know, I I thought I'd go to the New Living Translation. It says, Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbours. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. You ever tried to chase wind? I think as little kids... They get out in the playground. They always chase the wind. They're running. I found when I was teaching Christian education in schools that I hated windy days because it always brought the, 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 the nervousness out in children. Does, do you find that at school? Yep. Windy days. I don't know what it is. I think it's because they chase the wind and it's meaningless. It's pointless, Solomon says. The preacher here, Solomon, is pointing out that much of our work, and remember without God in the picture, Much of our work is indeed motivated by envy, motivated by the sinful desire to get ahead in life so I can get ahead of other people. The wisest man to have lived knows 
that's staying ahead of or keeping up with someone else, in our case the Joneses, we'll keep mentioning them, plays a bigger part in our life than it should. He says, I have seen every labour, every skill is done through envy. Now, I don't believe Solomon is saying that envy is the only reason people work. If you looked at that, if we took that verse by itself, it would sound like a bit of an exaggeration. But I believe Solomon is using hyperbole in verse 4. It's an intended exaggeration to get his point across. It's like when I say, I never do that, or I always do that, when I know I don't always do. I'm just trying to get across a point. Well, that never happens to me. It's a hyperbole. And I know it's an intended exaggeration because Solomon has already told us that work is a gift from God. Just turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. I want you to see that, there's, that it is a gift of God. It says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labour is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. And so work's not a problem. But, the, but like all of God's blessings, even work can be distorted by sin. And even with the hyperbola, Solomon is trying to bring out a point, and that is without God, if God is not in your life, one of the reasons we work so hard is to get what our neighbour has. I think that's the, the idea of advertising. Maybe Pete can fill me in a little bit. The idea of... I need this because someone else has got it. Advertising wouldn't work otherwise. We work hard for our money to buy more things or else what we do is we put it on the plastic to engage in what an economist has called retail therapy. And that's what we do. We, we work and we work. And the fact is, even when we, if we had everything we wanted, even if we got everything we covered, someone else's envy will come along and the cycle will begin. They'll get something better. You'll want something better again. And it's just a full circle. And I know this happens. And I know it happens in the church. It happened to my brother. Seeing others, admittedly he was in a charismatic church, but the whole idea of if someone else has something, then he should have something better because God you know, doesn't want him to have something less than that. It's called health and wealth gospel, but I've seen it happening. Solomon's basic premise is that running the envy race is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind and that's as much sense as it makes. It doesn't bring happiness, even if you win. And so I ask you the question, at this very moment, have you envisioned something that someone else has and that you want? And I ask that question not knowing the answer, but you do. At this very moment, are you envious of something that someone else has? Then I want you to listen to Solomon whisper in your ear. He's reminding us. He's reminding us that wanting what God has given to someone else instead of what he has for me is vanity, meaningless and striving after this wind that you can't chase anyway. Wanting to keep up with the Joneses, according to Solomon, is meaningless. 
chasing the wind, it becomes all-consuming. And that's what he shares with us in verse 4. Then he goes on to verse 5 and goes the opposite end. Another extreme. And the extreme says the fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. He doesn't care about the Joneses. He doesn't care about anything else. This person has no ambition to work. You know, I think about it, for those of of us who are working, it seems pleasant to sleep in every morning. It seems like something that I wish I could do every morning. I wish I sometimes didn't have to go to work. But let me tell you, it's unpleasant not to have money to buy the necessities of life either. You know, this, uh, our society is, is becoming more and more the idea of people not wanting to work, who don't want to work, and our government props them up. And Solomon describes that as they fold their lazy hands and they eat until they have nothing left. That's what that verse is saying. In other words, as toil can become all-consuming in verse 4, so idleness is self-cannibalisation. Idleness might seem good, but it's self-destructing. And the reason I know it's self-destructing, besides the fact that Solomon says it, is that the Bible in the New Testament goes on to give us reasons why we should work. You might like to turn with me the two passages. The first is, the first is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. They're quite hard-hitting for people who think that they don't need to work or the government can look after them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such, a per- now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Going back to Solomon, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Because we need to work also, not just so that we're not becoming busybodies, but to provide financial support for our family. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those in his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, or an infidel as some versions put it. So according to Solomon and Paul, it's a fool It's a busybody, it's an infidel who isn't working, who isn't looking for work. Now I want to put a caveat in here that I know there are people who aren't working but who deeply desire to work. The scripture's not talking about them. And I don't want you to think that if you sit here this morning and you're not working because you can't find work, that you're going to be a busybody, all those scriptures are about you. It's your heart attitude. 
And so Paul, uh, Solomon gives us the idea that you work so you can, or you, you work because of envy. He says, the fool folds his hands and self cannibalizes. So where does that leave us? Maybe you're tempted to envy what other people have and you're wearing yourself out trying to get more and more money. Or maybe you think you're above all that and you avoid work altogether. Well, this is where Solomon's advice comes in in verse 6. Now, you know Solomon wrote a lot of Proverbs. Well, he also wrote Proverbs here in, in Ecclesiastes. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labour and striving after wind. Now, I want us to understand Solomon's counsel here. One hand full of quiet, restful, tranquil living is better than two fists clawing, scraping, striving, pushing and pulling their way to the top. It's a comparison built on a contrast. Rest is contrasted with labour and striving. I thought I needed a synonym here, a, a, a synonym. And the synonym I came up with was contentment. A restful person is peaceful and composed. And so rather than always striving after more, he or she is satisfied. And Solomon's proverb in verse 6 simply means that one of the most important things in life is contentment. The answer to the rat race is finding contentment, to be happy with who we are and with what we have and what we might, ha- uh, might be, to be happy with that, to be content. You know, I've always thought it would be great to be a billionaire, but then you find a billionaire, he's not content. He always needs that next million. He's always searching for it. He's not content. We might only have half of what someone else has, but if we're content with that, that's what it's all about. Now I want us to turn to Paul again in Philippians chapter 4 because Paul got to the point in his life that he could write this. My desire is to get to a point in my life that I would be able to write this and to live it. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11. And I believe this is a part of the contentment that Solomon is talking about. Philippians 4.11 Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sometimes we take that verse 13 out of context, don't we? And we we use that in myriads of different ways. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whatever that may be. But in Paul's context, it's the fact of being content. Whatever I have, it's because Christ can strengthen me through it. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labour and striving after wind. The restful person, 
The contented person has found the right balance. Their hands aren't folded like the fool. They're working hard, but only hard enough to have a decent handful, only one handful of what they need in life. And that's enough. They don't keep demanding more and more, but accept what God has given them. They're not worried about the Joneses. I wonder if we've learned to be content as we sit here this morning. Are we content with what God has allowed us to have? Yes, we need to work hard. But we need to be content with what we have. And so, like me, I wonder if you can say with Paul, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, we need to find our satisfaction not in the goods that we work and strive for and keep up with the Joneses. Our satisfaction comes from the goodness of God. It comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through knowing him and as has been pointed out to us in songs this morning in asking, here am I, send me. But Solomon didn't leave it there in verse 6. He continued with his thoughts. And he came up with another point about the danger of living in a a life or working in a life without God. And that is verse 7. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. He says, I I continued to look under the sun without God. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother. Yet there was no end to all his labour. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. I'll just leave it there. Here we have a guy in verse 8 alone. He has neither a brother nor a son. He doesn't have God. He's under the sun. He lives under the sun. He has a, if he has a wife, she's not mentioned. So perhaps this is a biography of a bachelor. So what we're, get, what we're seeing is he's only working for himself. He's not working for the blessing of anyone else. There seems to be no end to this man's work. Day after day he keeps working. I wonder how long his work week is. 50, 60, 70 hours. Yet he was never satisfied. Look what it says. His eyes were not satisfied with riches. He wanted more. But for what purpose did he work? What was his purpose for working? No matter what he gained, the man had no one to share it with. He appears to be working so hard that he hasn't made friends or started a family. Well, the end of verse 8 tells us quite poignantly he didn't even take time to stop and ask himself what was he doing with his life. Look at the end of verse 8. He never asked. He didn't stop to ask. And for whom am I labouring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity. It is a grievous task. Who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure in working and striving? Here he was making costly sacrifices to advance his career, to build up his bank account, yet never considering whether it was worth it all. Never considering in why he was doing it in the first place. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, why am I working? Who am I working for? Why am I doing it? Solomon cried out, 
This is meaningless. This is a miserable business. Working, 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 not even knowing who you're working for. I'm not talking about the man. We all work for the man. But why do we work? What's the point of it all? Face it, the dream of society is that we work and we earn and we sell and we buy and we labour more and we get more. It's crazy. But that's the truth of it. And Solomon says it's also meaningless and depressing. And without God it is. It's meaningless. It's depressing. So what's not meaningless and depressing when it comes to work? Well, if we listen carefully, Ecclesiastes is teaching us that work can be a pleasure, but not if we pursue it for our own purposes. To find pleasure in our work, we need to ask ourselves that question in verse 8. Who am I working for? That's the question you need to ask yourselves. And we need to come up with the right answer. Are we working for ourselves under the sun? I think the Christian answer needs to be, I'm working not for myself, but for the glory of God. I'm working for my family to feed them, as 1 Timothy 5.8 says. You might remember Paul writing to the Corinthians tells them, whether you, then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Are we working out of envy, just wanting more and more? Are we not working at all because we're just too bone lazy? Or are we working for no one? Not even knowing who, why you're working for. This is what Solomon is trying to bring across to us. But he has lessons for us, or we can glean lessons from this passage. And so I went through and worked out what are the lessons the Lord has for us in this text. And the first one I came up with is we need to stop trying to keep up with the Joneses. We must not define our, uh, our, our material needs and our material wants based on what other people have. Now if you have children, and even if you don't, I'm sure you've all heard the reason our children give when they want something. All the other kids have it. You know that reason, don't you? Well, most parents don't fall for that old chestnut, do you? You don't fall for that and you, you tell your children why and, and you go on with life. Yet some parents and a lot of other adults fall into their own trap. I want this because everyone else has it. We buy certain houses in certain areas or cars or clothes or furniture, tools or toys, not because they're things we really need, but because we want to have as nice as stuff as the other people in our neighbourhood or in our family or in our church. Now please don't misunderstand me and think that I want us to be poor and living in the streets. That's not the desire I have or the Bible has. There's nothing wrong with having nice houses and cars 
and clothes. If God has blessed you with the finances to afford these things and leads you in that way to, to spend it, then I say that's great, praise God. But we need to make sure our spending is not based on, on what everyone else has. We need it to based on what is good for us and our family and good for God, do all to the glory of God. And unfortunately, there are people who end up getting in deep financial trouble because they have the habit of buying and trying to keep up with someone else and they put it on the card and it just gets worse and worse. Don't do that. Solomon says this aspect of the rat race is futile. It's meaningless. It's useless. Chasing the wind. Trying to make sure we have as much as someone else does not honour the Lord. I think Solomon brings that in verse 4. The second lesson from this passage is we need to keep our job in the right perspective. It is right to work. There's nothing wrong with working hard so we can have a successful career. There is no merit in being lazy. There is no merit in just putting in our time when we're on the job. We are to work to the glory of God. We are to work hard and there's nothing wrong with it. But we need to keep a couple of things in mind and the first thing is our motivation. Our motivation for working hard, our motivation for wanting to be successful should not be so we can get what someone else has got. It should not be to make more money than the next guy. That competition will put you in the rat race. Our commitment to our job and our desire to work hard must not also interfere with the important priorities in your life. And we're Christians. I wonder if you know what I'm going to say. Yes, we should take work seriously, but we should not take it as seriously as our commitment to the Lord. Jordan has given us a a few songs to, to sing and a few verses to think about the fact that we say, Here am I, send me, Lord. We should take our work seriously but we should not take it as seriously as our commitment to Jesus Christ or our commitment to the church which is the body of believers or to our family. The most important priority we have as Christians is to honour God in all we do. That's the bottom line. Honouring God in everything we do. If our job is preventing us from taking the time to read the scriptures if it's taking away from us the time to pray, if it keeps us from serving in our church and from using your gifts that God has given you to encourage the church, then there's something wrong. If your work is keeping you from committing to God, then we need to look at it because no job is more important than honouring the Lord. And I know there are jobs that are 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We know that. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about your heart attitude, that your job 
and you know your job is taking you away from your church. Most of us who work have family responsibilities. If our commitment to work is keeping us from being a good parent or a good spouse, then there's something wrong. Believe me when I tell you that you can never make enough money, enough good things to make up for the harm that overcommitment does or to work does in our homes and our churches. And I know you could probably think of many stories where a husband thinks he's doing the right thing by working 70, 80 hours a week to bring in those finances to, to keep his family going, but not seeing his kids. Sometimes we have to look at why we need to work 80 hours to be able to keep the things that we have. Maybe we can't even afford or can't afford the things we have. and So we need to cut down. There's not enough money in the world to make up for the harm over commitment to work causes in our homes and I want to say in our churches. Remember what Solomon said. Better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. Then lastly this morning, the third lesson from Solomon is we must ask the Lord to help us to be content. We need to realise that even if the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence, it usually isn't. There's a story a little apocryphal story of two little teardrops floating down the river of life. One teardrop says to the other, who are you? And she said, the teardrop said, I'm the lost teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. And she asked, who are you? Well, I'm the teardrop from the girl who got him. Sometimes we cry over what we can't have but it's very possible that we might cry twice as much if we have it. God in his sovereign loving wisdom often spares us from the so-called blessings we ask for because he knows in reality they're curses. I've often wondered very shortly in time why the Lord never really decided to give me money or to allow me to have finances. I've been in churches where God has given people uh, lots of finances and they use it for his glory and praise God for that. And I often wonder that, but I know I come up with the answer and the answer is if I have money, I'd be drawn away from the Lord. I know that. I know that is my weakness, if you like. I'd be away on trips and you wouldn't see me in church. I'd be away every weekend, flying here, flying there, And God's, in his wisdom, has never given me the ability to do that. And I say, thank you, Lord. He knows me and they'd be a curse. Money would be a curse to me. Some people can handle it and use it wisely. I can't. And so I have to look and we all have to look at contentment and realise the fact is that contentment and happiness flows from a grateful heart. You see, most of us in this room are blessed with uh, material possessions. We have relatively good health. We have a loving family and good friends. And we should be very thankful for the gifts that we have from the Lord. But what if you didn't have any of that? Would you still be content? Even if you were poor 
and you were sick and you were alone, should you still be content? And the answer is, of course we should. I still should overflow with thanksgiving. I should be content. And the reason is because of God's amazing grace, which is ours through Jesus Christ. That's why if you live under the sun without God, you can never be content. That's why Solomon wrote that, to point out without God, you're just striving after wind. The Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the pearl of great price, which means when we have him, we don't need anything else. Of course there's a lot of other things that we desire to have. Of course things make life easier and more pleasurable. But the bottom line is when you're a child of God, because Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Saviour, we really don't need anything else. I like the story of the old Puritan who sat down to his meal and found that that day they only had bread and water. That's all they could muster. Yet the story goes, he exclaimed, Praise God, all this besides what I have in Jesus Christ. If only that could be our attitude as well. Everything we have besides what I have in Jesus Christ should be contentment. And so when we realise what we have in the Lord, what we realise we have in Jesus Christ, when he thinks, says, I can do all, all things through Christ who will strengthen me, whether it's in the hard times or the, or the prosperous times, <clears throat> when we realise we have that, then we need to abandon the idea of getting ahead and keeping up with other people. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labour and striving after wind. And may we experience true contentment in Jesus Christ, true joy as we focus on, on, on our lives, on trusting him, on following him and loving him. And contentment will be the outflow of, of Jesus Christ and his love for us. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that your scriptures are so clear that we are to work. We are to put our nose to the, to the plough and to, to do all that. Yet, Father, we can do it for wrong reasons. We thank you that we have a man who has gone through it and seen the wrong reasons, who has lived under the sun without you. But I thank you, Father, that as we sit here this morning as born-again believers, we have the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Saviour. And that, Father, when we do work, that we don't work to, to buy those things that are, are useless and just keeping up with everything else, but we do it to your glory. We do it to, the, to your glory for the building up of our family and the building up of our forever family here in our church. Help us to, to look at our lives, to think of the priorities that we do have concerning work. Lord, if we are putting too much into it and neglecting you, neglecting the church, neglecting our Bible study, whatever it is that we're neglecting, Lord, help us to put it right and to think upon our reason for working. Why do we work? Lord, these are questions that Solomon has asked and I pray that 
you will lead us to ask those same questions. Who am I labouring for? Give us the right foundation for our work, I pray, so that we may glorify you. Amen.